0: Welcome to another episode of Colored Red, a podcast all about Colorado true crime. I have a short historical murder for you guys today, and I have some housekeeping, but I'll get to it at the end, and I'm not one for chatter, so I'll just jump right on into the story. As Denver entered the 1880s, yes, we're going back over 100 years ago, it started to expand and grow the economy was booming. Mining led to a lot of financial wealth that the city had really never seen before. So Denver quickly became a transit hub for the Union Pacific and the Kansas Pacific railroads. And of course, we still have one of our most well-known and iconic buildings downtown for the Union Pacific Railroad. Industries and factories were built all along the South Platte River. And trains brought new people, new workers, new transplants and residents into the city every single week. There were a lot of issues also around this time with this, this huge expansion and all these new people, centered around racism and sexism and a lot, a lot of underground crime. Denver also boasted a red light district that rivaled anything within hundreds of miles, and honestly, and it was honestly known across the entire country, even in cities like Chicago and New York. In 1876, this red light district, or Tenderloin District as it was sometimes called in many cities, was moved from the downtown financial district onto Holiday Street, which is now known as Market Street. And it honestly didn't stop there. It sort of branched off into surrounding blocks, and lining the street for quite a distance were the places of ill repute that local residents either loved or hated. A man, a local man named Vernon Briggs, who basically hung out in this area and lived in this area, gives his account of this here. At the bottom of the underworld can be found the lowest type of poverty-stricken humanity. It is composed of all shades, grades, and colors huddled together. These places of existence are called cribs, dives, dens, holes, and nests. These hellholes catch all kinds of girls in the drift who do not realize their fate, of that there with the scum of the earth until too late. It would not be possible to escape even if they had a desire to do so. So it should be no surprise that shady underground life was just a part of life and crime was a part of life too in Denver. And murder was a regular occurrence and oftentimes the crimes went completely overlooked by local press who didn't really even want to venture into these areas or try to report on anything. So while cribs operated on Holiday Street, theaters and leg shows operated along Blake Street. By 1876, more than 60 saloons operated in Denver, that's six zero, and almost all of these places were scrambling to provide a unique entertainment experience that would top their neighbors or top the saloon that was just across the street. Included in this entertainment was a variety of different things. So variety shows, burlesque, minstrel performances, other musical acts, and an early version of exotic dancing where women showed, quote, a lot of leg. And this isn't to say women were solely marginalized in Denver at this time, because much of Denver's economy was driven by female brothel owners, and they were some of the wealthiest people in the entire city. Chief among them were Belle Warden Maddie Limon, whose house of mirrors you can still walk by downtown, and Ida Mae Jones. And as I've said before, because women were chief figures and so influential in the establishment of many western towns, Colorado was only second behind Wyoming to give women the right to vote in the very progressive year of 1893. This is nearly three decades before Congress granted all women in the United States the right to vote in 1920. So women in Denver were doing business. But anyway, at this time, there was a big boss of Denver Gambling named Big Ed Chase, and he owned three of the most notable and notorious establishments, and those were the Arcadia Hall, the Cricket Hall, and the Palace Theater. Among these three, the Palace Theater was the most well-known establishment for backroom gambling, closed-door politics, and other shady business operations. So the Palace Theater was located on the west side of Blake Street between 14th and 15th Streets, where the palace lofts now sit. It featured all forms of entertainment, so they had elegant buffets, fine wine and drinks, racy female stage performances, gambling, and plenty of backroom thug activity. (laughs) And it wasn't just shady characters who hung out there, it was a central hub for many Denver politicians and public figures, whether they really would admit to it or not, and it saw many frequent customers, including prominent Denver journalists and major local businessmen. And due to the central location of the Palace Theater at this time, its proximity to the train station, um, the Palace was often the first stop for anyone coming into the city for the first time, and it was a hot spot for miners. And I don't mean children here, I mean people digging for silver and gold. So it's basically people would get off at Union Station or the version of Union Station that existed at that time and they would see the Palace Theater and the whole den of brothels and all kinds of things down um, Holiday and Blake Street. So if you can imagine that as your first impression of Denver. The Palace Theater was also operated with some immunity for a long time as tons of businesses were at that point being granted liquor licenses and were literally never interfered with by police for any reason whatsoever. One paper called The Colorado Transcript from July 14, 1886, describes an incident at the Palace Theater in which a rich Californian was drugged and robbed on site with help from police and employees of the theater. The council actually voted to revoke the liquor license of the theater, but then this, of course, was also just never enforced, and the theater continued with its operations. But the Palace Theater was murder central, including being host to three murders in one year alone, for which there's really little information that I can find, other than this sentence in the Castle Rock Journal that simply says, another murder at the Palace Theater in Denver Sunday night. This sentence is just underneath another short announcement in the paper that says, Mr. E. Blake is repairing his buildings ready for winter and just above an announcement saying the Rio Grande is making some improvements to its track at Larkspur. If that gives you really any indication of how desensitized Coloradans were to murder at the Palace Theater. When newspaper though was sort of paying attention from the Georgetown Courier they stated that from the amount of blood that has been spilled in that den its floors must be of a gorgeous gory red color. But Big Ed Chase wasn't to be dissuaded and he assured that the Palace Theatre continued on. And he basically did this by paying off local politicians and police and other various entities around Denver so that the Palace Theatre could press on. But throughout all of this, one murder struck Denver particularly hard and it was one of the murders that really went noticed. One of the showgirls employed by the Palace Theater was 17-year-old Effie Moore, who was born Effie Thomas in Kansas City before joining a vaudeville company. One evening while she was working, she met 19-year-old Charles E. Henry, who, while only 19, was a good-looking, charming, and very wealthy gambler. Charles had left his home in london ontario in 1887 after winning five thousand dollars in the louisiana lottery and his plans were literally to just become a professional gambler and live the high life through that on average he won around 30 dollars a day for his first two weeks in denver which was a really good amount of money at that time but he spent most of this on women at the palace theater When the women weren't acting on stage, they were out hustling in the crowd because they were instructed, basically, to bring private men into boxes and entice them to buy drinks, for which they received kickbacks from the sale of drinks. And just such a thing happened with Charles, who was sat in with Effie Moore, and he was immediately smitten with Effie and he would come to the Palace Theater nearly every day to watch her shows and stay with her in a private box long after hours. After a couple weeks of this, he asked Effie to marry him, and she agreed because the company was leaving for Montana in a few days, and she thought that she could keep him deceived until then. And her agreeing was really all a part of her act to act like she was really into her customer. So on Sunday, November thirteenth, 1887, Charles learned that Effie was already married to the manager of the vaudeville company that she worked for, a man named William Carroll. And when Charles confronted Effie about this, she played it off and assured him that she wasn't married to William and that she would be marrying him, Charles. So the next day was a poor one for Charlie. He lost $400 at roulette, and with this blow lingering over him, he heard from yet another person that Effie was already married, and that she was putting him on as part of her act, and that he was kind of a fool. That night, he went with Effie into a private box, and after 20 minutes, two gunshots rang out throughout the theater. An attendant opened the door to find Charles standing over the dead body of Effie with his gun still smoking. He then, for whatever reason, fired two more shots um, at nothing, and that hit no one that they know of. Maybe there were some unlucky people blocks away that whose murders are still unsolved who knows he then broke down in complete tears and he told the attendant save me take care of me send over the police and put me in charge and they say that he sobbed the entire way to the police station another dancer carried effie's bleeding body to the green room and they found out there that she was in fact dead still in her thick powder and paint of her stage makeup with two gunshots in her chest bleeding all down her dress Gambling tycoon Ed Chase agreed to pay all the funeral expenses for Effie. And more than 4,000 mourners lined the streets and came out for this funeral procession. So Charles had plenty of money left over from his lottery winnings. And so he hired a prominent local criminal attorney named Edgar Capeless, who arranged bail and put together a strange defense for Charles. The trial began in February of 1888 and he entered a plea of not guilty by transitory frenzy, which they were twisting from the more well-known insanity plea, which basically means that he was only insane for a brief moment and now he's just not anymore. Capeless told the jury that Charles was just an innocent boy who was, and I quote here, captured by a siren who drove him mad. The jury apparently agreed with this ridiculous statement and returned a verdict of not guilty. This type of insanity plea was among the first successful of its kind in American court history. After this verdict came out and the Palace Theater was under scrutiny, the Denver Republican, a newspaper at that time on an issue dated February 26, 1888, condemned the Palace Theater as a human slaughterhouse scene of four murders during the past 13 months a thoroughly tough hard place frequented by a class of desperate depraved men and women the employees are almost without exception of the worst possible character so charles walked out of the courthouse and left and months later the rocky mountain news reported in an issue dated july 19th 1888 that Charles Henry had been found unconscious in his hotel room at the Brunswick Hotel. The paper said he had ingested large amounts of alcohol and laudanum in an apparent suicide attempt. But Charles unfortunately lived. And four years later, a woman named Irene Russell was found dead on the banks of the Trinity River near Dallas, Texas, with a bullet through her heart and a pistol laying next to her. The coroner claimed it was a suicide, But a capable detective at that time, named M.W. Kirby, decided to ask around a little bit more about this. He discovered through Irene's neighbors that Irene had a lover named Charles E. Henry, the very same, who was still a professional gambler and now living in Dallas, Texas. The pistol laying next to Irene had been lent to him just that night. Charles claimed he wasn't her lover, but a letter discovered written by him to Irene's sister clearly showed that he was. But, get this everyone, in June of 1892, yet another jury acquitted Charles E. Henry, and the rest of his life is lost to history. Thank you everyone for listening. I would like to make a short announcement that I have started a Patreon page. It is uh, patreon.com slash And for just $1 donation per month, you will receive a handmade thank you card from me and a vinyl covered red sticker. And the idea here is that I'm going to be trying to get some funds to get some more merchandise created for you guys and to fund a special project that I'm going to be working on this year to bring you more interesting content. And eventually, I would like to donate a portion of the proceeds to local charities started by families of victims of stories that I've done, as well as the Colorado Innocence Project, etc. But I would definitely keep you guys updated on the Patreon if you guys were uh, patrons. So go on there, just donate $1 and receive a vinyl sticker. And I hope you guys enjoy that. So as always, I'm going to have some pictures up on the Instagram account for this case that I've done today, and that is at Red Podcast. So head to that Instagram, and if you enjoy the show, please do me a big favor and go onto iTunes and rate and review it. And if you don't like the show, you can do that too, but keep in mind, this is just a local podcast uh, with no production company. So that would be just amazing, you guys. Thank you for being my listeners and I'll have a new, uh, larger case for you guys at the end of this month until then.